0: Let us pray. Blessed Lord, who has caused all holy scriptures to be written for our learning, grant that we may in such wise hear them, read, mark, learn, and inwardly digest them, that by patience and comfort of thy holy word, we may embrace and ever hold fast the blessed hope of everlasting life, which thou hast given us in our Savior Jesus Christ. Amen. If you have your Bibles, we are in a study of 2 Timothy, Paul's last epistle, and we are picking up today in 2 Timothy chapter 2, beginning at verse 14, and we're going to go ahead and read through the next few verses, at least through verse 19, and then we'll come back and take a look at them in detail. So, 2 Timothy chapter 2, verse 14, Paul writes, Remind them of these things. Uh, them, that would be the church. I remember that Timothy is a pastor in Ephesus, so Paul is writing to him to remind the church of these matters. He says, Remind them of these things and charge them before God not to quarrel about words, which does no good but only ruins the hearers. Do your best to present yourself to God as one approved, a worker who has no need to be ashamed, rightly handling the word of truth, but avoid irreverent babble, for it will lead people into more and more ungodliness, and their talk will spread like gangrene. Among them are Hymenaeus and Philetus, who have swerved from the truth, saying that the resurrection has already happened. They are upsetting the faith of some. But God's firm foundation stands, bearing this sealed. The Lord knows those who are His. And let everyone who names the name of the Lord depart from iniquity. When I read those words in preparation for today's class, it reminded me of Germany in the last century. Uh, during the 20th century, Germany, some would say instigated, and was involved in two great worldwide conflicts. Uh, the Great War, the First World War, 1914 to 1918, and then the Second World War, of course, uh, 1938 basically to 1918. 19- and Germany uh, started off both of those conflicts extremely strong. Uh, under the Kaiser, uh, in the early part of the century, uh, Germany was almost unmatched in terms of its military strength. Uh, its army would have rivaled any army anywhere in Europe, and at that point it was neck and neck with the Royal Navy for supremacy on the sea. It was a mighty force, it was a force to be reckoned with. The same thing, of course, was true at the onset of the Second World War. Uh, In spite of the peace treaty that ended the First World War, Germany was not supposed to have a standing army, or a very small standing army. It was not to have any air force whatsoever, and yet, by the dawn of the 1940s, Germany had, again, an army that was unequaled, and the German Luftwaffe, the German air force, was unrivaled in terms of its control of the air. Germany was very powerful at the beginning of both of those wars, and yet it lost both of those wars and it was a devastating loss to say the least. Now there are any number of reasons that contribute to the downfall of Germany in the first war and in the second, but many military historians will tell you that certainly one of the reasons why Germany failed in both of those conflicts was because she engaged herself in a two-front war. In the First World War, she fought a western front against her allies, the British and the French, and and then she had an eastern front against the Russians. And by the time you get to the Second World War, what? 30 years later or something like that? Lo and behold, what's happening? Well, it's the same situation all over again. Germany finds herself fighting a two-front war against her allies on the west and against the Russians on the east. And as a result, she's never able, she's never able to muster all of her resources in order to fight just one foe and then turn her attention in the other direction. And as a result, she ultimately Falls. Well, the Apostle Paul here in 2 Timothy has been reminding his young protege that the Christian life is not easy. And one of the images that Paul uses, of course, is the image of a soldier. He says, like a good soldier, be about your duty. Stay focused on the things that you have to do as a follower of Jesus Christ, and do not be distracted. Well, to some degree, Paul returns to that imagery here, and he warns Timothy about the fact that our enemy is going to try everything in his power to distract us and to engage us in a two-front war. And that's what Paul is warning Timothy about here, about the fact that our ancient foe, isn't that the way that Martin Luther described the devil? He said, but still our ancient foe doth seek to work us woe. His craft and his power are great and armed with cruel hate. On earth is not his equal. Paul makes it very clear, not so much here in 2 Timothy, but certainly in Ephesians, that as Christians we struggle what? Not against flesh and blood. He says our battle, our struggle, is really a spiritual battle against the spiritual forces of wickedness in the heavenly places. And that's why in Ephesians he says, put on the full armor of God. Put on the helmet of salvation, the breastplate of righteousness. Take up the shield of faith. Have your feet fitted with the readiness that comes from the gospel of peace. And above all, he says, take up the sword of the Spirit, which is the word of God, and pray on all occasions. Paul is very clear. You and I are engaged in a conflict. And to be forewarned is to be forearmed. And he's saying that our crafty enemy wants to defeat us. He wants to bring us down. And one of the ways that he wants to do that is he wants to divide us. He wants to engage us in a two-front war so that we are never able to focus all of our attention where the real conflict is. And that's what Paul is talking about here in 2 Timothy. Now, what are these two fronts? Well, one of the fronts, of course, is the obvious. Now, you and I are engaged in a battle, and it's a battle against the world, It's a battle against the flesh, and it's a battle against the devil. And we know very well what that kind of a conflict looks like. We we know it in our own lives. How did St. Paul put it on another occasion? He said, the very things I want to do, I do not do. And the very things I hate, these are the things I find myself doing. O wretched man that I am, who will deliver me? We can all relate to that, because we've all done things that we don't want to do. And we failed to do the things that we long to do. That's because we're under assault. We're being attacked. And we can see this attack coming not only from the devil, but from the world and from the flesh. In the secular culture, we're beginning to see a limitation on our freedoms, not the least of which is our freedom to worship. We're seeing from the culture intimidation, people being told that to even speak the word of Jesus Christ or to proclaim the gospel may be regarded at some point as a kind of hate speech, and so you see intimidation. And in some places in the world, not here, at least not yet, we even see Christians who are being, what, imprisoned for their faith. You may not be aware of it. When we think of the persecutions in the life and in the history of the church, we think of the persecutions that took place in the ancient world. We think of the persecutions that took place under the reign of the Emperor Nero or under Diocletian when Christians were dragged from their homes and taken into the arena and thrown to the lions or forced to compete with the gladiators. That's what we think of when we think of persecution. But let me tell you something more Christians, more Christians suffered and died for their faith in the 20th century than in all previous centuries since the resurrection combined. How's that? Most of us think of the 20th century as sort of a Christian century. But more Christians suffered martyrdom. That is to say, their lives were forfeit for the faith in the 20th century than in any other century combined. So we need to realize we are living in desperate times, and we are engaged in a battle. Now, that's not meant to be depressing, but again, it's helpful to know what you're up against, because, again, to be forewarned is to be forearmed. If you know what's coming, you can be prepared for it. So Paul is very clear we are in a struggle from the outside. But Paul makes it very clear here in these five verses in 2 Timothy chapter 2, that the enemy not only attacks us from the outside, but he's doing everything in his power to infiltrate and disrupt things on the inside as well. It is the enemy's intention to not simply attack the church from the outside, but if possible, to infiltrate the life of the church, the ranks of the church, and disrupt and divide from the inside. Jesus talks about this in one of his parables. Keep your finger there in 2 Timothy for just a moment and turn to Matthew chapter 13 for just a moment. If you have your Bibles with you, and again, let me encourage you. I I wish I had uh, the ability to do what Al does, and that is offer everybody um, a $2 bill if you bring your Bible. Um, That's what he does to the youth. Um, All I can offer you is a shot at eternal life. So, um, Matthew chapter 13. Now, let me just say something, and we've talked about this because we've looked at the parables, not all of them, of course, but we've looked at some of the parables. I don't recall if we looked at this one in particular, but I said that sometimes the parables are difficult for us to understand. They are simple, but they are by no means simplistic, and some of them are difficult to understand. But others are very clear, if for no other reason than Jesus goes on to explain them. And that is the case with the parable that we're going to look at right now. It's the parable of the weeds. Matthew chapter 13, verse 24. Sometimes it's referred to as the wheat and the tares. He put before them another parable, saying, The kingdom of heaven may be compared to a man who sowed good seed in his field. But while his men were sleeping, his enemy came and sowed weeds among the wheat and went away. So when the plants came up and bore grain, and the weeds appeared also, and the servants of the master of the house came and said to him, Master, did we not sow good seed in your field? How then does it have weeds? And he said to them, An enemy has done this. So the servants said to him, Then do you want us to go out and gather them? He said, No, lest in gathering the weeds you root up the wheat along with them. Let both grow together until the harvest, and at the harvest time I will tell the reapers, gather the weeds first and bind them in bundles to be burned, but gather the wheat into my barn. Now, as I said, some parables by Jesus are fraught with difficulty. But we're grateful for the fact that the Lord goes on to explain this particular parable. Skip over, if you will, to the next page, to verse 36. Then he left the crowds, and he went into a house, and his disciples came to him, saying, Explain to us the parable of the weeds of the field. And he answered, The one who sows the good seed is the son of man. The field is the world, and the good seed is the sons of the kingdom. The weeds are the sons of the evil one, and the enemy who sowed them is the devil. The harvest is the close of the age, and the reapers are angels. You know, one of the things about the parables I said to you when we were looking at the parables over the summer is that the parables have this way of just cutting through everything else and going right to the heart of the matter. This is a very provocative, it's a very challenging parable. And it's a parable, listen to this, about the church. That's really what this parable is about. It's a parable about the church. Or one might go so far as to say the church is. Now, what do I mean by that? Well, when you ask many people today, what is a church? Most of the time, they're going to tell you that the church is a building like the one behind me here. It's it's bricks, mortar, and stone. It's where people gather to sing hymns and to hear a sermon and to hear some lessons from the Bible or from some other holy book. When we think of a church, that's what we think of. Now, of course, the Bible never speaks of the church in that sense. The word is... Ecclesia, and it means called out ones. Church has nothing really to do with bricks, mortar, and stone. That is the place where the church gathers, but it is not the church itself. The church is the new Israel. It is the people of God who have been called out by the grace and the power of the Holy Spirit. And it's that church that we are referring to every Sunday when we stand and we profess our faith in the words of either the Nicene or the Apostles' Creed. And we say we believe in one holy Catholic and what? Apostolic church. Catholic means what? Well, it means universal. It has nothing to do with the Roman Catholic Church, which I affectionately refer to as the Roman Church. Catholic means universal. An apostolic means it is a faith that is built upon the foundation laid by the apostles, those men specifically chosen by Jesus to be the bridge between himself and the rest of humanity. And that one holy, catholic, and apostolic church contains all sorts and conditions of men and all sorts of denominations. There are Methodists in that church. There are Presbyterians in that church. There are Baptists in that church. There are even Episcopalians in that church. There are all kinds of people in that Catholic church, including Roman Catholics. See, anybody who names Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior is a part of that church. So that's really, when the Bible talks about the church, it's not talking about the building. That's where the church gathers. That's where the church meets. Incidentally, I discovered something very interesting Did you know that in the early days of South Carolina, the only building that could be called a church was the Anglican Church at one point? Because this was the state church. This was the established church. Everybody else had a meeting house. There's nothing necessarily wrong with that because really, that's what that is over there. That's a meeting house where the church gathers. It's not the church itself. God forbid, should we have another fire and it burn down, St. Philip's church will still be here. But while there is that church, theologians refer to that as the invisible church, the one holy Catholic and apostolic church. There is another church, and the other church is what we call the visible church. The visible church is all the people who show up for worship on Sunday. So look around you here. Everybody in this room is a part of the visible church. Now whether or not they are part of the invisible church, which is to say they are part of that mystical body, that gathering of people who have been called by the Holy Spirit, now that's a question for God. There are lots of people who show up for church on Sunday who are in the ranks of the church, but they do not have that personal relationship with Jesus Christ. Which is not to say they don't know about him, it's just to say they do not know him personally. There are even some people who come to church for reasons other than an interest in religious matters. You know, some churches are a good place to go and meet people. It's a good place to go and meet a husband. Better than going to meet a bar, going to a bar. It's a good place to go and meet a wife, perhaps. It's a good place to go and meet business associates. It's a good place to make connections. There are all kinds of reasons as to why people go to a church, small c. Sometimes they do it out of force of habit. Sometimes they do it out of a sense of guilt. Sometimes they do it just to keep their wife happy. But whatever the reason, whatever the motivation, they are there, but that does not necessarily mean that their heart is there. And remember what we say in that call it for purity at the beginning of every service. Almighty God, unto whom all hearts are open, all desires known, and from whom what? No, no secrets are hid. God knows why you're here. And he's concerned with those who come to worship him how? In spirit and spirit. In truth. So Jesus is telling us in no uncertain terms, in the church, in that building where the church itself actually gathers, there are believers and there are unbelievers. And oftentimes you can't tell the difference between them. Let me tell you, you're never going to be able to look around this room and say, I, I can tell by looking at Gov Gotchalk over there. <laughs> he, he, he's in the invisible church now, I know, man, he's, he's a believer. But that Jeff Miller, I'm not so sure about him. But Jesus makes it very clear there are those two churches. The invisible church, that mystical body of believers, a countless number of hosts. But there's also those who are there. They appear to be a part of the church, but they're really not. And when will the distinction be made? He said, you can't make the distinction in this life. You never know. You won't know until the harvest day, when the Lord returns in glory, when the trump sounds, when the dead are raised, and the books are opened, and there is that great judgment. Then at the harvest, the wheat and the weeds will be separated one from the other. But what I want you to notice is that in that parable, who is it that comes and sows the weed among the wheat? Who does that? It's the enemy. An enemy has done this. And as Jesus explains it, he said that is exactly what the devil does. He comes and he works in and through the life of a believing community. That's what he wants to do. He not only wants to attack us from the outside because the church is the most powerful weapon in God's arsenal. That's what we're here for to be an instrument of God. We are on earth, since Jesus is now ascendant and sitting at the right hand of the Father, the church is referred to as the body of Christ on earth. That's what we're here for. Like a mighty army moves the church of God. Onward, Christian soldiers. That's the image. And if we've got an enemy, the one thing he wants to do is bring down the foe. And so what is he going to do? He's going to attack us from the outside, but he wants to engage us in a two-front war, and so he's going to try to send secret agents into our midst infiltrate our ranks, and sow the seeds of dissension even in the life of the community of faith. And we may not like to hear that, but my friends, that's just a fact. That's what Paul is warning Timothy about. He said, watch out for the enemy on the outside, but watch out for the enemy because he's going to infiltrate and he may even have agents on the inside. And he's going to seek to bring division. And let me tell you, if the church is divided, my friends, we are vulnerable. And not only are we vulnerable, but my goodness, the world is vulnerable because we are the only hope that the world has as the body of Christ. So if we're divided, if we're fighting, if we're devouring one another, how much good can we do out there in the world? Let me tell you, you can tell when a church is really on the move, when the enemy starts to take notice. There's an old expression that pilots used to use during World War II, you only catch flak if you're over the target. You know what flak is? It's anti-aircraft fire. A pilot knew when he was getting close to the target when he started to catch flak. When the enemy begins to attack a church, that's because that church is making a difference in the world. But rest assured, that doesn't mean the enemy is going to slack off. He's going to do everything in his power to attack us from the outside, to disrupt us from the inside. And that's what Paul is talking about now. So go back to 2 Timothy and let's listen to those words again. He says, Remind the church, remind the believers of these things and charge them before God, what? Not to quarrel about words, which does no good but only ruins the hearers. Verse 16, avoid irreverent babble, for it will lead into more and more ungodliness. Do not be fighting about words. Now, what does Paul mean there? Because we recognize that words matter, don't they? Brian preached a little bit on this uh, at the Wednesday service this past week. How many of you have ever heard the old nursery rhyme, sticks and stones may break my bones, but words will never hurt me? Anybody hear that? How many of you think that's true? It's not true. Actually, words can hurt far worse than any kind of physical pain or suffering. A father's harsh word to his son can crush that spirit. Words do make a difference. So, what does Paul mean when he says, do not argue about words which does no good but only ruins the hearers? Well, what Paul really means, especially within the context of what he says elsewhere, is that we should not be arguing about trivial matters. What we would call second order matters. Matters of minor significance. And churches do this sort of thing all the time, don't they? They get so engaged in conflicts about little things that they're completely distracted from the things that really matter the most. And as a result, their potency in terms of an instrument in God's hand is nullified. So we're not supposed to battle over little things. And let me tell you, churches do it all the time. For instance, I've heard Christians divide over the issue of creation. How did God create? Did he create in six 24-hour days? Or did he do it over huge epochs of time? Did God just create man, as the Bible says literally, from the dust of the earth or did he use some sort of process of evolution over the course of millions of years until he bestowed his image on homo sapiens so that they became a homo divinus? I've got only one question. Who cares? Now there's nothing wrong with trying to understand what the scripture is saying. But there is a danger sometimes. There is a danger in focusing so much on the minors that you miss the majors. What Genesis teaches us, at the very least, is what? God did it. Now, if you read through the opening chapters of Genesis, this much is true. God created the heavens and the earth. How did he do it? The Bible doesn't tell us. I'm not sure we'd understand it if he did he created man in his image. Now, if you're worried about the fact that you may have come from a monkey, consider the fact that being made from the dust of the earth isn't particularly attractive either. (laughs) Is it? I mean, let's be honest. And if you're worried, well, I don't want to think of myself as a monkey, you needn't, because God bestowed on man, however he decided to create man, His image, and one thing is very clear, I have never seen a monkey, an ape, an orangutan, whatever you want to call it, I've never seen one of them write a book, or a symphony, or produce a civilization, or a library, or any of those things. So to be perfectly honest with you, I I don't get too hung up on those matters. What I do know is that God created the heavens and the earth, he made man in his image, man, Because he desired to be like God, turned away from God. And the consequence of that was death. Primarily, spiritual death. Now, we get all hung up on the physical part of it, but primarily it's spiritual death. On the day that you eat of the tree, you will what? Die. Well, they didn't die physically, but they died spiritually. They died in terms of their relationship with God. But I've seen Christians vilify each other over this matter and insist that their particular interpretation of the Bible doesn't really matter in the end how God created the world. Now some people will say, well the integrity of the Bible matters. Well, I agree with that. But we have to acknowledge that there are good Bible believing Christians out there who on this issue at least disagree. And it is a matter of first order importance. Let me give you another example. The sacraments, baptism in particular. Churches have divided over this issue for centuries about how we are supposed to read the Bible when it comes to the sacraments. Some people insist that infants should be baptized. Others insist it should be adult believers baptism. Now even those that baptize infants believe that there does come a point of accountability where you have to own the faith for yourself. We call that what? Confirmation. So it's not as though one group, those who baptize babies, are saying that no, you don't have to have an age of accountability for yourself. And yet Christians have divided over this issue, sometimes vilifying each other. Within Baptist churches, it's even worse. They divide over not only adult baptism, but the mode of baptism. Do you baptize one time forward? Or do you baptize three times forward? One time in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Ghost? Or three times in the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Ghost? And do you dunk forward? Or do you dunk backward? (laughs) Now we laugh about this, but let me tell you something. Baptist churches have divided over these very issues. Some of you are out there shaking your heads because you know it to be true. And let me tell you what the enemy is doing when he sees this sort of thing. He is laughing. Because we are so focused on these things over here that going out and rescuing the perishing is not even on our radar screen. So we're not only being assaulted from the outside, we're being assaulted from the inside. Now, let me just say one final word about this before we move on. I am not saying that these matters are not worth debating. I think it's worth debating the whole issue of evolution. I think it's worth debating. The whole issue of how we understand the opening chapters of Genesis are worth debating. The whole issue of the sacraments is certainly worth debating. What I will say to you, they are not worth dividing. I think that's what Paul means when he says, don't be engaged in this battle over trivial matters over words. So much so that you miss the heart of the matter. And let me tell you, Christians do it all the time. Classic example, came out of the Reformation. Reformation was a great movement. There are some who think that the Reformation was a big mistake, I don't. I'm thankful for the Reformation and the recovery of the supremacy of the scriptures authority and for the doctrine of grace and justification by grace through faith, and the message that we are here for the glory and the glory of God alone. I am thankful for the fact that the reformers wanted to go ad fontes back to the sources. But even the reformers at one point became so stubborn that they almost destroyed the very thing that God was doing in the life of the church. One man, perhaps more than any other, is associated with the Protestant Reformation, and who's that? Martin Luther, man, he went and he nailed those 95 theses to the door of Wittenberg Cathedral. And he stood there before the Diet of Worms and he stood there before the Emperor and he said, here I stand. To deny one's conscience is neither right nor safe. Here I stand, God have mercy. Oh, we think of Martin Luther as a champion, but let me tell you something, Martin Luther was German. And he was stubborn. I got a little bit of German in me, so I understand how that works. But the story goes that there was a great division that took place among the reformers between Ulrich Zwingli and Martin Luther over the nature of the sacrament of the Lord's body and blood. Ulrich Zwingli insisted that the sacrament was a memorial. After all, Jesus said what? Do this in memory of me. Take and eat this in memory. Martin Luther on the other hand insisted, no, 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 no. Jesus said, this is my body. This is my blood. Something happens when the priest says those words, and there's a transformation that takes place. It may taste like bread and wine, but it is the flesh and blood of Christ. It is consubstantiated. And so this debate took place. And so they decided to meet and talk it out. I mean, that's what Christians should do, shouldn't they? Get get together and talk it out. And so they waited Luther arrived late. He walked in. There was a table between the two men. And he took a piece of chalk and he wrote in Latin on the table, this is my body. And Zwingli stood up to say a word. And the minute he opened his mouth, Luther said, ah! And he pointed to the words on the table. And Zwingli said, I thought we were here, ah. And he pointed to the words on the table. And Zwingli said, why have I come all this, ah. And he pointed to the words on the table. There was no conversation, and let me tell you, the Reformation almost broke apart over that one encounter between those two men. Because Luther was so concerned about being right, he was not willing to show any charity whatsoever. Or to engage in the possibility that perhaps, perhaps, somebody else might have a biblical, godly insight as well. These things are worth debating. But Paul says when it comes to second order matters, they're not worth dividing. That's why when it comes to the sacraments, people ask me, well, do you believe in the real presence? Do you believe that it's a memorial? What do do you think? I think C.S. Lewis got it right. Jesus said, take and eat. He didn't say, take and understand. And so we take it in faith, trusting that by God's grace it will do what it's intended to do. And so we have to be careful about not dividing over trivial matters because that's exactly what the enemy does. And if we're fighting over these things, then there are people out there who do not have a relationship with Jesus Christ who are perishing. And that's what the enemy's really worried about. So Paul warns us to watch out for that kind of division within the church. Be very careful about these things. He gives four guidelines for the church. Four guidelines. First thing he says is avoid quarreling over words. Verse 14, trivial matters. And Paul's advice to Timothy is not just an advice to Timothy. These are good words of advice for you and for me in the church today. Because let me tell you, congregations divide over these issues. Not just denominations, but congregations. I remember when I first got to St. David's, Choral, the rector. Maybe I've already told you this story. I got caught between a battle royal between the two great powers in the life of the congregation. The altar guild and the flower guild. That's what I got involved in the conflict. I I was there, uh, it was the first um, Sunday of Advent coming up, and I went in there and the chairman of the Flower Guild uh, pulled me aside, my my office connected with the sacristy. That was the first mistake they made. At any rate, (laughs) she's in there and she's getting everything ready for Sunday and she said, "Um, you know, we have, um, we've always used purple candles. And I said, okay. And she said, we still have some purple candles left over from last year. I don't think we need to go out and buy new candles. Do you care if we use four purple candles? I said, oh, that's fine. Sure. Save the church some money. That's great. Well, the next day, Sunday, I walked in, putting on my vestments, and in came the chairman of the altar guild. With her hands on her hips, she said to me, I see. New rector, but nothing changes. The same people get the rector's ear. And then she turned around and stormed down and I said, Whoa, 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 Barbara, come come back. What's this all about? And she said, The Advent wreath. I said, The Advent Wreath? What's the problem with the Advent wreath? She said, The interim told us that we could have three purple candles and one pink candle. And I see you've gone with four purple candles. Now let me tell you, I couldn't care less. But these women were ready to divide their two guilds over the color of an Advent wreath candle. So for the whole season of Advent, we didn't have any candles. We just didn't light them. Now we laugh about this, but let me tell you something. For some people, this is serious business. I've seen churches divide over the color of a carpet. I don't like the color of that carpet going down the center aisle. I don't like the fact that it goes the whole way up against the pews. It looks like tomato red. That clashes with everything else in here. And people will divide over these issues. And they think that this is really what matters. And Paul says, let me tell you something. If you allow that to happen in the life of the church, the enemy has won. So the first guideline is avoid quarreling over words, trivial matters. Great story about Lord Nelson at the Battle of Trafalgar in 1805 off the coast of Spain, where the great French Navy and the great British Navy are going head to head. And the story goes that at one point, two officers, as they're ready, getting ready to engage the enemy, two officers on the quarterdeck, Nelson's flagship, the HMS Victory, get into a battle with each other, an argument about some matter on the ship. And all of a sudden, you've got the French fleet running out its guns, and this one officer pulls his sword, and the other draws his pistol, and they're ready to duel right there on the quarter deck. When all of a sudden, Nelson steps between them. And with his one good arm and his one good eye, he gestures toward the French fleet, and he said, Gentlemen, may I remind you that they are the enemy. Let's not lose sight you and I are engaged in a battle in who the enemy really is. Second bit of advice that Paul gives Timothy in this matter is lead by example. Do your best to present yourself to God as one approved. Remember, first of all, Timothy, who you're working for. You don't work for the church. Anytime I preach an ordination service, I, remind, I always say something to the congregation and I always say something to the young ordinand. And the thing I always say to the ordinand is, remember, you don't work for the vestry. Any vestry members out there? (laughs) No clergyman works for the vestry. A clergyman works for God. He works with the vestry. Now this may be a shocker to you, but I can back this up biblically. I can even back it up canonically. A clergyman works for the Lord. The vestry simply has the privilege of paying his salary. That was a joke, come on. (laughs) It's nervous laughter rippling out through there. I see the vestry out there copiously taking notes. But Paul says, remember who you work for, Timothy. You work for the Lord. And you have to lead by example. If the people out there see you being divided over these matters, they're going to take their cue from you. Paul repeats this advice incidentally. In 1 Timothy, he says the same thing. He says, set the believers an example. You cannot lead from behind. If you're a Christian, you have to be willing to lead from the front. If you are saying that Christians have to sometimes suffer and make sacrifices for the sake of of the gospel, then you need to be prepared to do that in your own life. It cannot be an academic exercise where you say, other people need to suffer, but I am not willing to suffer up and give up everything if necessary for the sake of Christ and his kingdom. Are you willing to do that? Are you willing to give up everything for the sake of Christ, for the sake of his truth? For us right now in this diocese, that's not an academic question, is it? It's a serious question. It's a real question, it's a flesh and blood question. Are we willing to give up all those old ties, those things that are precious for us, if necessary, in order to follow our conscience and be faithful to the word of God? Set the believers an example. When I was first ordained um, and became a rector, I uh, had lunch with my, the priest that had basically raised me. He had been a priest at that point for over 40 years, and I went home, I had just a brand new rector. I was a rector at 26 years old. So I, I was really young. And I was scared to death. And so I went home, and Kristen was with me. And uh, my home rector, we always called him Father Martin. And uh, he was a man's man big, broad chested, uh, silver hair, crew cut, really neat mustache. He was like a John Wayne of clergy. And uh, he had a farm outside of Pittsburgh, and we were out there on the farm. We were just walking through the farm one day, and uh, I said to him, well, I- I'm going to be a-, a rector now. Father, do you have any-, any words of advice for me? And he said, oh, no, I don't have any words of advice. You'll be fine. I said, oh, come on. You've you got to have something for me. Throw me a bone, some word of advice. I said, you've been a priest for 40 years. I've been a priest for two. Tell me, what do I do? He said, well, I'll tell you two things. He said, you're going to hear a couple of things. First thing you're going to hear is the expression, heads will roll. You ever ever heard that expression? I said, yeah. He said, the next time you hear it, just remember they're talking about yours. (laughs) That was the first bit of advice that he gave me. Next time you hear that expression, just remember they're talking about yours. Second thing he said is this, remember You are the friend of everybody and the friend of nobody. I've never forgotten that. You are the friend of everybody and the friend of nobody. In other words, you have to love the people equally. You cannot play favorites. You cannot treat one person as more valuable, more significant than another. Now that's not to say that priests aren't human beings. Of course they are. And there are some people that you will automatically be attracted to. There are some people you will resonate with. But you cannot treat one person as more important than another person. You have to be the friend of everybody and the friend of nobody. And as Christians, that's what we're called to do. To love all men, all women, equally. And it is not easy. Because you know what? There are some people that just aren't lovable. that's what it means to be a leader. Bishop Lawrence likes to say that leadership is giving up the right to be understood. That's another thing about being a leader. Sometimes you have to make decisions that people don't understand and don't agree with, and being a leader means giving up the right to be understood. As Christians, we're gonna have to give up our right to be understood in the culture today. Paul gives us that advice. Lead by example. In verse 15, he says, do your homework. He says, do your best to present yourself to God as one approved, a worker who has no need to be ashamed, rightly handling the word of truth. You know, people sometimes come to me and they say, I just can't get out of the Bible what you get out of it. I mean, you could take two words and talk on this for an hour, and I'm just not getting that. I understand. I'm going to tell you something about Bible study. It isn't easy. It is not easy. Anybody that tells you it is easy has told you a lie. To study the Bible, to read it, to mark it, to learn it, and to inwardly digest it, as the colleague said, is hard work. But let me ask you a question. What in life that is of true value is easy? Is there anything in life that is of value, that is easy. Now that's not to say that sometimes in our lives God doesn't speak through the Scripture in such a way that our hearts just sing, our minds come alive, we understand it as clearly as we could, my goodness. But some people think that when they're in a time of crisis, what the Bible is meant to be is to be some sort of an answer book, you know, like the teacher's manual. It's not like that, it's far more organic. God doesn't want to just give you the answers to life's problems. What God wants is a relationship with you. That's the heart of Christianity. It's about a relationship, and that's what He wants. He wants to speak to you. If the only time you ever talk to Him is when you need something, what do you think is going to be the state of your relationship? So God wants you to spend time in His Word, learning from Him, beginning to trust Him. And the more time you spend with Him, the more you will begin to understand Him, His ways, His purposes, His desire for your life. So many times people say to me, well, I was having a rough day, and so I just threw open the Bible and closed my eyes and pointed to a verse, and I'm going to say, this is the verse for me, for today, this is today's verse. And then they look and it says, and Judas went out and hanged himself. (laughs) Oh, and they think, oh, my, I, I got that one wrong, so I, I close my eyes and turn again. I'll, I'll get another verse, and they point to it, and they open their eyes, and it says, Go and do likewise. <laughs> God wants a relationship with you, He wants to have a personal relationship with you. He wants you to spend time with Him, and you know this. Those of you who have been married know. It takes years to cultivate, to get to know the other person. And once you've been married, sometimes for 40, 50 years, you are finishing the other's thoughts and sentences. But it's hard to get there. Don't let anybody tell you, oh, it's been 50 years of bliss. (laughs) That isn't true. You know it's not true. There may have been some blissful moments, but there have been some other moments that were not blissful at all. It is hard work. But it's worth it. You will come to know the Lord Jesus Christ, and the more time you spend with him, the more Christ-like you will become. It's not about knowing about him, my friends. It's about knowing him. And finally, says, having done your homework, rightly handle the word of God. Do not abuse it. Once you know it, use it for the purposes for which it was intended. Do not abuse it. You can make the Bible say anything you want it to say, but our job is not to use it as a bludgeon. Our job is to sit under its authority to allow it to transform us into the image of Jesus Christ and then to rightly handle it in such a way that when we speak, As shepherds of God's people, what they hear in our words is the voice of the good shepherd. That's one of the reasons why the Articles of Religion says the church can ordain rites and ceremonies, and yet it is not lawful for the church to ordain anything that is contrary to God's word written. So, my friends, let's stop arguing about trivial matters, secondary matters. Let's not forget where the enemy is and who he is and what he wants to do. Let's lead by examples, set the believers an example in our conduct, in our words, in the way we live our lives. Let's be a people who apply ourselves to the scriptures. Let's dig in. Let's go deep. You cannot live on milk if you want to grow up. Let's go deep, and then let's rightly handle the Word of God, the sword of the Spirit, and the enemy will retreat in fear. Onward Christian soldiers marching as to war. Next week when we come back together again, we'll take a look at the whole issue of what Paul calls spiritual gangrene in the life of a congregation. Let's pray. Lord, we give you thanks and praise for your word. It does speak to us. It speaks to us where we are. This is not a dead letter. This is a living word. Holy Spirit, speak through your word to us. Take our hearts, transform them, shape them, mold them, mold us into the image of your Son, Jesus, and then use us for your glory and honor, for we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Okay, thank you. Um, it's, not about, it's not about knowing about him. It's about knowing him. Is that a, is that a quote It's a quote from me. <laughs>